Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics, uh, the podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Welcome to New Books in Politics, uh, the podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today, we are talking about the new book, The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, it is co-authored by three members of the organization Free Speech for People, Ron Fine, John Bonifaz, and Ben Clements. And today we're talking to Ron Fine, the legal director for Free Speech for People. Thanks so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Normally I would ask what would compel you to write a book like this, but perhaps it might, it might be somewhat of an obvious question. Uh, obviously there are plenty of people out in the country who are not thrilled with the presidency of, of Donald Trump, but... Uh, why uh, would you write an impeachment uh, treatise for him and not for past presidents that you disagreed with? Well, this book is not really about disagreements with presidents uh, on their policies. This is not about uh, the partisan issues that divide Americans, uh, like tax policy or the health care policy. This is about fundamental constitutional limits on the office of the president. And what we show in the book is that President Trump has abused his power uh, by violating uh, constitutional and other legal principles that uh, constitute high crimes and misdemeanors, which is the constitutional standard for grounds for impeachment. So the title of the book is The Constitution Demands It. Now, the Constitution gives the power to impeach to the House, the power to convict by the Senate on the basis of high crimes and misdemeanors. But doesn't that make the decision a fundamentally political one uh, that uh, regardless of what the president actually does, uh, there is flexibility for the House or Senate to decide whether it rises to that level. So why do you argue that there there is a demand the Constitution directs the Congress to take this, this sort of action? You're absolutely right that impeachment mixes the legal and the political, and that is by design in the Constitution. When we say that the Constitution demands impeachment proceedings, uh, Congress is, of course, not literally forced to impeach Trump. That decision lies in Congress's hand, and no court or anyone really other than the voters can force Congress to act. But more broadly, the Constitution itself doesn't really demand anything because it's a piece of paper. It doesn't make demands. But there is a deeper sense, and that's the sense in which we meant it by the title, in which the Constitution does demand action. And that's that if we care about its principles, if we care about preserving the system of constitutional democracy, imperfect though it may be that we have uh, brought forth into the, the 21st century, then we can't tolerate a profiteering president who abuses his power to shield his corrupt dealings and to reward his cronies 
and harass his political opponents in the press while toying uh, erratically with nuclear war. So the sense in which the Constitution demands it is that if we don't act now to hold Trump to account, then not only Trump himself, but future presidents will see this as a green light, understanding that these principles, these limits are no longer enforced. Um, we are speaking in uh, the uh, July of 2018. Uh, at this point, the special counsel investigation is not completed. Uh, the House and Senate investigations on uh, what happened in the election are not completed. Some would say what's happening in the House is um, has broken down into partisanship and is never going to go anywhere. Um, how can you say definitively before any of these investigations are completed that there is a you know, essentially a, a constitutional and moral imperative to impeach now? Why can't you wait until these, these investigations are, are finished? That's a great question. Our national discussion about impeachment has become uh, misled by a discussion of criminalization because many people are under the misperception that is fostered by some uh, in congressional leadership that impeachment requires a statutory criminal violation. In other words, a violation of a criminal law that for which somebody could be prosecuted and put into prison if found guilty. That is not the limit of impeachable offenses. And we know this for a fact because we have statements from the founders themselves at the time that the Constitution was being framed in which they discussed the range of high crimes and misdemeanors. In the book, we identify uh, eight grounds for impeachment. Of those eight, only two of them overlap at all with special counsel Mueller's investigation. The other six are entirely separate. They're not things that Mueller is looking into. They won't be covered in his report. And yet we make the argument for why they are impeachable offenses. So we don't need to wait for the conclusion of Mueller's investigation because for six of the eight grounds, there's not even an overlap with Mueller's investigation. And we also argue that for the other two, that Congress actually has its own investigative powers and can move forward with investigative hearings towards impeachment without relying on criminal prosecution, which has several technical limits uh, and, uh, and will be affected by considerations that apply in federal criminal trials, but don't apply at all in impeachment proceedings. So give us some examples of the grounds that you uh, uh, assert uh, are grounds for impeachment that are not covered by the current investigations that are going on. Yeah, the very first ground for impeachment is something that the president was violating the moment he took the oath of office. The Constitution has two anti-corruption provisions that prohibit him from deriving a, a payment or a profit or financial advantage from either foreign governments, that's in a clause of the Constitution known as the Foreign Emoluments Clause, or from receiving financial benefit from the federal government or even state governments other, of course, than his official salary, and that's called the Domestic Emoluments Clause. And he was violating these from the moment he took the oath of office because he refused to separate himself from... Uh, ownership and profit of his business holdings, which do quite a bit of business with foreign governments and also the U.S. government. Now, these provisions are grounds for impeachment, and we know this because the framers said so. We, in the book, 
recite uh, history from the debates at the Constitutional Convention, the uh, state ratifying conventions, where the framers made very clear that they viewed accepting foreign or domestic government emoluments as grounds for impeachment. But that's not part of the Mueller investigation because emoluments, although unconstitutional and although impeachable offenses, are not violations of statutory crime. So he can be impeached for it, but that particular ground is not something that he could be prosecuted in a, a federal criminal trial. Now, wasn't the um, the General Services Administration that, that uh, issued some kind of statement that uh, we don't think this actually you know, crosses that constitutional boundary? Am I, am I remember that correctly? The General Services Administration uh, issued a, a, an opinion on the contract that it has with a, one of Trump's properties, the, the hotel in D.C., and they are not in a position to interpret the domestic emoluments clause of the Constitution, and they didn't. Uh, what they were interpreting is that the contract has a provision in it, um, and this is a contract that actually predates Trump's run for president because he, he made the bid to uh, run this hotel, which is located on federal property. Um, several years before his run for president. But the contract includes a provision that says, and I'm paraphrasing here, that uh, no benefit from this contract may come to any elected official of the United States. Um, and the General Services Administration concluded that that wouldn't apply to President Trump on, on fairly specious reasoning. But if you step back and look at what happened, what that means is that the federal government under Trump uh, reached a decision on a legal matter that conferred a financial benefit on Trump, meaning he has uh, found a way to continue to profit from the federal government well beyond his official government salary. And that's a violation of the domestic emoluments clause. Now, one, one other of the grounds that you uh, think is impeachable uh, is abuse of the pardon power. Uh, so the your emoluments argument says there's a clause in the Constitution that says presidents can't do this, therefore it's impeachable. Pardon power saying the Constitution says the president does have the power to do. Um, why? Uh, what is the base of the argument that that the the pardon power is not absolute, and there is a line a president can cross that would uh, make a, a particular pardon an impeachable offense? That's a great question. So the pardon power is certainly broad. And I should also say as a preliminary that every president issues some pardons that are controversial. Uh, so you know, get that out of the way. The issue here is that the pardon power is not totally without limit. And before we even get to President Trump, um, let me give you some uh, hypothetical examples. Uh, one is a, a famous example by a, a law professor named Charles Black, who wrote a book about impeachment on the eve of Nixon's impeachment hearings. And he gave the example of if a president announced in advance that he would pardon uh, any police officers um, who were uh, convicted of police brutality against protesters. And he gave that as an example of an impeachable abuse of the pardon power, because in that case, the president would be using the pardon power to fundamentally undermine the rule of law. In other words, not just to grant um, you know, mercy to a particular case or, or to do uh, some other legitimate exercise of it, but to fundamentally undermine the rule of law. So what we have in Trump's first pardon, which is of uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, is a pardon that crosses a line that no presidential pardon has ever done before, which is that Joe Arpaio uh, had been convicted of criminal contempt of court for violating a court order 
to for deliberately violating a court order to stop violating the constitutional rights of uh, Latinos in in Arizona. And what that pardon did, besides, I mean, I've just described the line that it crossed that none has been done before, but the effect of it is to completely undermine the constitutional guarantee of due process of law, because the way that people can vindicate due process of law is in the courts. And what is it that courts can do? They can issue injunctions, which are pieces of paper. And the penalty for violating an injunction is contempt of court. But if the president sends out a message, not just to Arpaio, but to any, uh, whether it's a racist local sheriff or uh, a local ICE commander or any other government official, if he sends the message that if you're with me uh, and you violate the constitutional rights of uh, of these people uh, who are, you know, I'm defining as my enemies, me being the president in this example, then don't worry. Because if you get into trouble with the court and the court issues a court order, you can ignore it. And if you get convicted of contempt of court, I'll pardon you. And the way that we know that abuse of power is an impeachable offense, uh, sorry, abuse of the pardon power is an impeachable offense, is that James Madison himself told us uh, in the Constitutional Ratifying Convention, and uh, much later, uh, a Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, said that abuse of the pardon power uh, would suggest a resort to impeachment. So that's another example. It's not a violation of a federal criminal statute. Mueller is not investigating this pardon. He couldn't because it's not a crime. And yet we know from uh, two centuries of history that abuse of the pardon power is a ground for impeachment. Uh, you also have as a ground uh, undermining the freedom of the press. Um, so I'm curious what your your basis is there, because there's no example of Trump uh, shutting down a newspaper, uh, you know, banning cover, uh, you know, saying it's illegal to write this about me. No one's being imprisoned. He he says mean things about the press, but is that just his own exercise of his First Amendment freedom of speech right, uh, and and uh, not a literal violation of the First Amendment's freedom of the, of the press? Yeah, this is another example of a of a category where no president has. Uh, cross this line before. And this is one where we don't have a handy precedent, let's say, from the Nixon impeachment proceedings, uh, because no president has gone quite this far. So in answer to your question, strongman leaders in other countries have discovered that uh, an authoritarian ruler can undermine the freedom of the press, even without formal censorship. And, And Trump is taking us down that path. So one aspect is what you mentioned, which is um, the repeated uh, tweets and comments about about fake news, um, which uh, amount to several per day on average, that are designed to uh, undermine uh, Americans' faith in the independent press. But it's not just that; uh, he's also uh, threatened, and as we recently saw uh, with a, a CNN reporter, uh, revoked access of particular reporters based on. Uh, asking hard questions. He's threatened to use the law enforcement power to punish the press. We learned that from uh, from Comey, that, uh, that Trump ordered Comey to talk to uh, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, about trying to put more reporters in jail. He tried to use the Postal Service to raise the shipping rates on Amazon as an indirect way of punishing the Washington Post. Uh, he's threatened to revoke the licenses of television networks He's pressured private media companies to fire executives and reporters. And 
when you put all of this together, you know, no one tweet, uh, you know, threatens the the sanctity of the freedom of the press. But when you put all of it together, it's an extensive pattern that undermines uh, a fundamental freedom that past presidents, although most past presidents have had prickly relations with the media sometimes, they understand that freedom of the press is a fundamental American value. And the last thing I'll say is that it's also damaging uh, freedom of press abroad. And there are uh, examples in other countries where uh, foreign countries with um, dictatorships or, let's say, questionable commitments to democracy have used Trump's own statements um, about, let's say, CNN being fake news as a way of excluding or limiting the press. So in essence, he's not only undermining it here, but he's exporting it abroad. Uh, we're talking with Ron Fine from Free Speech for People and the co-author of the new book, The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump, published by Melville House. Uh, my name is Bill Sher, host of New Books and Politics on the New Books Network. Uh, one of your other grounds for impeachment uh, is, excuse me, uh, uh, well, involves nuclear war, saying that he is um, uh, reckless in danger by threatening nuclear war. Uh is it, it I mean, the, the president as commander in chief has a constitutional uh, role to determine uh, foreign policy direction? Obviously, Congress has some role in that as well. Uh, but uh, if the commander in chief wants to threat nuclear war, it might be horrible. He might kill us all. But does he not have the constitutional right uh, to threat nuclear war? That's another example of something that we've never quite dealt with before. So you could imagine a president who's a, a savvy strategic mastermind who is using uh, carefully developed threats uh, as part of a global uh, geostrategic approach to uh, achieve complex foreign policy goals uh, with a calculated risk. But that's not what we're talking about with Trump. All available evidence indicates that his own national security staff, his own senior advisors doubt very seriously that he lacks the capacity to understand the consequences of his decisions and that when he makes nuclear threats, whether against North Korea or more recently against Iran, that he is doing it without any understanding of what might result. And the reason that we chose reckless endangerment as a a way to cast what he's doing is that reckless endangerment is actually a crime in many states, and it's a crime in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which applies to the soldiers under his command, where reckless or wanton actions that have a a likelihood of bringing uh, death or serious bodily harm, even if it turns out that that harm doesn't result, constitute reckless misconduct. And we discuss in the book uh, an example of a fairly recent court-martial prosecution where a sergeant uh, ended up spending almost a year in prison for uh, recklessly failing to inspect some parachutes. And when you compare the recklessness of the president's threats of of nuclear war uh, and the potential for miscalculation, when you consider how many times at, at the height of the Cold War even with the Soviet Union, where we had a good understanding of each other and the, and the people on both sides were fairly rational, how many nuclear near misses we had. When you put all this together with Trump's erratic behavior, his use of these uh, threats to uh, distract from uh, temporary political problems, it amounts to reckless endangerment. 
you also charge Trump with uh, one of your chapter titles, advocating illegal violence undermine equal protection of the laws. What's an example of Trump advocating illegal violence? Yeah, so he did this uh, fairly early uh, in his presidency. And of course, it, it didn't begin with his presidency. We know that during the campaign, he was often encouraging uh, crowds at his campaign rallies to beat up protesters. And there's some uh, really disturbing video montages that, that will show him uh, saying just that. When he became president, uh, he gave a speech in July of 2017 to police officers in which he said that uh, the, the cops needed to be more rough with uh, suspects who, who they had arrested. And it was disturbing enough that uh, a number of police chiefs issued a statement uh, condemning what the president had said and, and, and said, we respect the uh, constitutional rights of people that we arrest. And, uh, you know, some of these police departments are under court orders. Um, and they said, you know, we, we do not uh, condone our officers being rough with, with suspects. And this was only the first of several examples. Just a, a month after that, um, of course, we had Charlottesville. And then he uh, tweeted about uh, a a historical myth, basically, about uh, General Pershing, uh, who had uh, allegedly um, committed what would now be considered war crimes against Muslims uh, in the Philippines. And Trump uh, urged people to study this as an example and a model to be followed. And as, as time goes on, we see more and more examples of the president combining uh, race-baiting rhetoric with uh, a crude encouragement of casual violence, and it has a real effect on our society. And, and there have been a number of studies on what they call the Trump effect, where uh, there are increases in racial incidents in, in violence in schools and communities that can be explicitly linked to uh, Trump's campaign and presidency. Uh, you also uh, say that uh, Trump has directed law enforcement to investigate and prosecute political adversaries and critics for improper purposes. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? And also, can you speak to uh, you know, the president you know, does appoint the attorney general uh, which uh, and appoints the federal attorneys? Um, we, we don't like to think of them as political actors. We, we want to think of them as being uh, independent executors of the law. But isn't there um, some inherent politics there? You know, are, is the president allowed to direct his Justice Department to, to use uh, that part of the executive branch to uh, his desired means? And if the public doesn't like it, then they can take it to the ballot box. And this one we actually know is a grounds for impeachment because it was part of the impeachment proceedings against President Richard Nixon. The key thing is that the Department of Justice is not the president's personal law firm that he can direct against uh, opponents or critics as he sees fit, but its mission rather is to fairly and impartially enforce the law. The, the, the evidence that he's directed law enforcement to go after his adversaries and critics is all uh, virtually all out in the open uh, at this point. It's, it's not really a question, and most of it happens uh, on Twitter. But again, using Nixon as a, a precedent, um, one of the grounds for uh, the articles of impeachment that the House Judiciary Committee approved against uh, President Nixon was related to directing federal agencies to harass his political adversaries. And under our Constitution, um, the First and the Fifth Amendments prohibit law enforcement from targeting 
based on political opposition. And the due process of law includes the right to a disinterested prosecutor, not one who is acting under a command from a president with an axe to grind. And there are multiple examples, even besides Nixon, uh, of several federal judges who have been impeached for a vindictive use of power. So the, the president certainly has the right to appoint uh, the officials to run the Justice Department and can have some uh, influence on you know broad questions of Justice Department policy. But it, it's an abuse of power for the president to direct uh, the Justice Department to prosecute or investigate or harass uh, particular individuals. Uh, I think that covers the grounds that are outside of the special counsel's purview. Uh, We're speaking again in July of 2018. We don't know at this juncture what's going to come out of that investigation, let alone what might come out of congressional investigations. Uh, But do you have an opinion of how that investigation is proceeding? Do you have a degree of faith that Robert Mueller is um, uh, on the right track and will if not literally recommend impeachment to uh, Congress, um, ferret out uh, the facts related to such so Congress can make an informed judgment? Or uh, do you think it's just too hard to know because we're on the outside, we only get you know, glimpses of what's going on from, from leaks and such. Yeah, I think anyone who claims to have a, you know, inside track of what exactly is going on with the Mueller investigation is, uh, is not being honest because they have been very effective at uh, at keeping things close to the vest. I think overall it has turned up uh, an impressive amount of information and the, the number of indictments and pleas that he's secured already are impressive. There are two things I'd like to highlight. Uh, even in the areas where there is an overlap between uh, grounds for impeachment related to uh, the president's interactions uh, and his campaign's interactions with Russians during the election campaign and also with obstruction of justice, there are differences between criminal prosecutions and impeachment. And I'll, I'll just give two examples. One is that the specific statutory offenses that Mueller will need to be focusing on for criminal purposes have certain technical limits in them because these are the way that Congress wrote the statutes, not thinking of you know, the president as the one who would be violating them, that are really irrelevant in an impeachment process. So one example is that uh, under the obstruction of justice statutes, uh, there is a requirement that the defendant have obstructed or, or tampered or interfered with uh, a proceeding. And the term proceeding is present in uh, many of these statutes and different federal courts of appeal have interpreted what is and what is not a proceeding um, And so depending on where a prosecution would be brought and which proceeding we're talking about, uh, Mueller's criminal prosecution might uh, run into that. It's something he might need to overcome. And it's it's entirely possible that he might conclude that he can't bring a certain charge because in a particular circuit, it's not clear that something is a proceeding uh, under the obstruction statute. For impeachment purposes, that's really irrelevant. If the president is abusing his power, uh, as the publicly available evidence indicates that he is, to frustrate or impede investigations uh, into himself and his close associates, whether that constitutes a proceeding 
uh, is is really irrelevant. And that's something that Congress is certainly empowered to say whether or not it, it violates a criminal statute across the line of abuse of power. The, the second obstacle that Mueller will face that is, again, not relevant in impeachment hearings is he has to focus on what he can prove in federal court. That means that the federal rules of evidence are going to be uh, necessary. And these are rules that uh, control what information can be presented to a jury. So for example, a hearsay, meaning one person says that somebody else said something, uh, is ordinarily not admissible uh, in federal court uh, unless it meets one of several exceptions. Uh, so if all Mueller has for a certain point is testimony by one person, let's say Michael Cohen, that Trump said something or that another person said something, uh, unless he can overcome a hearsay uh, objection, he may not be able to present that evidence in court. Congress doesn't need to follow the hearsay rule in the federal rules of evidence. Congress can look at the evidence with a broader view than the type of information that would be allowed to be presented to a jury in a criminal proceeding. Do you have any opinion uh, whether it would be preferable from your perspective uh, when you're talking about going to a jury and um, having evidence that rises to the level of statutory violation, so far that is not related to Trump himself, but people like Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn and these indictments uh, for, uh, for Russian nationals. Um, when it comes to Trump, there, there is an argument that Mueller cannot indict Trump directly. He's not, that's not constitutionally allowable. Uh, and that's based on guidance from the Department of Justice in the past. Although some people argue that those, those memorandums don't, don't um, uh, control in this case. Uh, do, you have, do you have a legal opinion whether Mueller can indict or not? And do you have a preference whether Mueller recommends or suggests impeachment versus going for a direct indictment? Yeah, th this is certainly a question on which there are legitimate uh, disagreements. And so there are some authorities who say that the Constitution prohibits a sitting president from being indicted. Uh, and there are others who say that, no, it doesn't. Um, so no one can say that this is a settled question, that uh, you know the, the answer is, is completely clear. Um, but I would say that the, the balance of the evidence supports that a president uh, can be indicted well in office. But uh, recognizing that there are some who disagree, I think a, a very interesting point is that uh, a certain author uh, wrote some time ago that uh, a good reason not to have investigations or prosecutions of sitting presidents is that Congress can first conduct fact-finding impeachment hearings and that Congress has all the investigative authority that it needs to conduct those fact-finding impeachment hearings uh, in the absence of a special prosecutor. And the person who made, who made that point, who wrote that Congress can do the fact-finding for impeachment uh, rather than have a special prosecutor do it, was Brett Kavanaugh, who is now Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. So however the question comes out of whether a president can be indicted while in office, uh, certainly Congress can get at the same offenses the same misconduct, same fact-finding through impeachment hearings and remove him. And what's important about this is that impeachment is not fundamentally about punishment. We don't impeach and remove a president because of something that he once did in the past uh, that uh, has zero chance of recurring in the future. Rather, the purpose of impeachment is preventive and protective to protect the country 
from future misconduct and because it's unthinkable to allow someone who's done these things to continue to remain in office. And that's why we don't need to and shouldn't wait for Mueller to complete his entire criminal investigative process, which could take years before Congress can get moving on impeachment hearings. Uh, what do you say to folks, and you hear some of these voices on both the right and the left, I wouldn't say dominant on the left, but you hear it sometimes, uh, that we're making too much of the Trump campaign's interactions with Russia. Um, collusion is not uh, technically a crime. Uh, you hear folks on the right say, hey, if Russia helped Trump get elected, well, great, we got Trump elected. That's all that matters. You hear folks on the left say this is a this is a uh, a, this is McCarthyism redux, uh, and it's it's the Democrats trying to cover up from their own failures in the campaign by distracting us with, with Russia and not changing uh, their platform and nominating better candidates. Um, do you do you have a do you have a, something you say to folks who say this Russia thing is just getting overhyped and overplayed? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, hardly the case that a, a president. Uh, and we don't have 100% of the facts here, and, and maybe Michael Cohen will help bring us a, a little bit closer, but we have enough facts to be fairly damning. And to say that uh, it's overhyped, it's not a big deal for a president to uh, conspire, uh, to uh, interact with foreign government operatives, to uh, to gain uh, information in a political campaign, which, by the way, is a violation of federal criminal law uh, under the Federal Election Campaign Act, to suggest that that is not a serious concern is is fairly shocking. And I can't imagine that people would be making that argument if it were any other president, because there there certainly is a criminal prohibition involved here. And uh, the key is to forget about the word collusion, which has become the the term that's used in, in national media discourse, but it has nothing to do with criminal law. Uh, the the technical legal issues uh, that are at stake are conspiracy, coordination, uh, possibly aid and abetting, aiding and abetting. But even setting aside criminal liability, it's been long understood that, uh, including by the framers themselves, that the risk of foreign intrigue in the selection of the president is a serious constitutional concern. So at the Constitutional Convention, uh, there were discussions by key framers like James Madison and, and George Mason about how a president might procure uh, a victory or in an election by uh, conspiring with foreign powers and that this would be a, a ground for impeachment. So to, to minimize this and say it, it's not a big deal is to go against uh, not only uh, important uh, principles, but our own constitutional history. Let me ask you a couple of political questions to uh, close out. Um, what do you uh, say to the argument that uh, as bad as Trump is, and maybe some of the stuff is uh, impeachable, uh, as a political matter, um, uh, well, let me, let me start here. Uh, as a political matter, uh, how do you expect to get the two-thirds conviction vote in, in, in the Senate? You know, Maybe if Democrats win the House, you could get and you can get the impeachment process going the house could impeach but there's no way you, you, the, the sense that mathematically can't be two-thirds democratic uh, by 2019 and how are you ever going to get you know nine plus republicans to come on board uh and join democrats in convicting uh, the president when they've been so uh 
partisan and loyal to Trump throughout uh, his presidency so far. That's a great point. And the issue is is not only uh, one of Republicans, but also Democrats in that the uh, Democratic leadership has uh, essentially tried to stifle uh, what they call impeachment talk. And so both parties need to be held accountable for their uh, protection uh, or unwillingness to do anything uh, about the president. I think the key is to view impeachment as a process. And it's a process that has multiple steps and you don't necessarily start off with uh, the final headcount at step one. So just to use an example, uh, looking at President Richard Nixon, if you look at the public support for impeachment uh, for Nixon, uh, for most of the entire Watergate hearings, the support for impeachment was well below 40%. And even when the Judiciary Committee uh, opened uh, its formal impeachment hearings in May of 1974, public support for impeachment was still below 50%. And it never crossed 50% until the House Judiciary Committee actually approved articles of impeachment against uh, Nixon. And at that point, it, it skyrocketed. And what happened over that time was that the very process of impeachment hearings was a national education process for members of Congress and for the public. And right now, if you look at public support for impeaching Trump, uh, depending on which poll you look at, it's a little below 50%, maybe 45%, let's say, as, a, as an average of polls. But if you look at it uh, compared to Watergate, public support for impeaching President Trump is already at levels that weren't seen in the Nixon investigation until the House Judiciary Committee had already concluded its hearings. And we haven't even started hearings yet. So if you imagine a, a, a pundit in 1973 or 1974, before impeachment hearings had started, who you know, did a nose count and looked at the, the day's polls and said that Nixon would never be forced from office... Um, anyone who confidently predicts that Trump can't be in, impeached in the House or convicted in the Senate based on similar types of polling or nose counting before impeachment hearings have even begun is actually committing an even bigger error than uh, a pundit in 1973 who would swear that Nixon would finish his term. So so let's say uh, Democrats win the House. Um, public sentiment continues to shift towards in favor of impeachment. Uh, Democratic leadership gets on board, impeachment happens, it goes to the Senate, um, and you even can get Republicans on board at, at that point, you're probably going to be well into 2019 after the House does its own set of hearings, the Senate has the trial and the whole bit. Um, you're going to be in the midst of the 2020 campaign season. The Democrats will be ranked for president uh, in 2019, the first contest at the front end of 2020. Uh, is it politically advantageous for Democrats to literally dislodge Trump from office and, and give Mike Pence a full year as an incumbent going into 2020? Or is it better to just debate all these issues that you raise on the campaign trail and make it front and center for uh, Election Day 2020? I'm glad you asked that question because I want to explicitly not answer it. And the reason is that that this book, <laughs> this book is not about a partisan effort to help or harm one party's chances in elections. This is not about helping Democrats, hurting Republicans. This is about uh, constitutional principles that all Americans should agree to. So in looking at this, we don't look at it in terms of, you know, whose presidential campaign is this going to help or harm, uh, because that's not our concern. Our concern is 
uh, is removing a dangerous president president from office and also establishing uh, a principle and a precedent that there are lines that cannot be crossed and those lines will be binding on uh, future presidents after Congress steps up and takes action here. Whereas if Congress does not step up and take action here, the lesson that uh, any future president of any party and perhaps someone who's better organized uh, mentally and emotionally and more disciplined in achieving their aims than President Trump has turned out to be uh, will take the lesson that they can violate all of these principles with impunity and nothing will happen to them. So that's why we think it's important for Congress to move forward with impeachment hearings as soon as possible. And we would be thrilled to work with Republicans on this uh, when Republicans are ready to to step up and, and take the lead. So this is not about necessarily uh, helping or, or hurting one particular party in Congress, because there are many principled Republicans who want to uh, see the rule of law upheld uh, wherever they come out on, on policy issues. So that's why we are focusing on the important principles and uh, not trying to cast this in any way about helping or hurting one political party's chances in future elections. The book is The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump, published by Melville House. Thank you, Ron Fine, for being on New Books and Politics. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on with you and talk about the book.